And thank you, Daryl and Tina, for leading us this morning. First Peter chapter 5 is where we are going to be. If you'll turn in your Bibles there. Just a few reminders about First Peter as we kind of come to the close of this letter. Peter is writing this to a group of what he calls elect exiles that have been dispersed across uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey-ish area. There's all these churches that he's dealing with. It's not to one particular church. That's why it's called First Peter and not First Baptist Ephesus or whatever other letters like Paul does. It's written to multiple locations. And so Peter's writing this in Jerusalem. He's writing it to these people who are under persecution, who are facing some social persecution, but there's some political persecution that's coming down the road. And so Peter's preparing them. That's what much of this book has been about, is how to live your life out in the midst of suffering, or just how to live your life out as a Christian in general. And so we kind of have come to the end of First Peter, where now he's, he's tying up loose ends, he's wrapping everything up, and what you'll see when we get to this text this morning is what Peter does, is he addresses a group of guys he hasn't talked about in the letter yet. It's the pastors of those churches that he's sending the letters to. So let's read. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And then we will pray and we will walk through this text just like we always do. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he will receive an unfading crown of glory. And in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for this passage and this text, which is always just a little weird to preach about. But it's your word. It's your authority. And so it's beneficial for us. It's fruitful for us. It's uh, enough for us. So I pray as we walk through this text that you would encourage our hearts, that you would convict our hearts, that you would grow us more in the gospel with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, let's start with verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. We've said this multiple times as we've walked through books of the Bible, but it's a, a good refresher for us. In the Bible, there's three titles for a pastor, and all three are used interchangeably with one another. They all kind of have a different nuance. It's like today, some people call me preacher, some people call me pastor, and those things mean... Kind of the same thing, but different. A preacher is kind of a proclaimer, uh, and a pastor is somebody who's more of like a visiting in the hospitals and praying with people. There's a nuance there, but it's the same position, and that's what the Bible does in the New Testament too. So the three are, the first one is elder. It's not necessarily talking about age. We see Paul writing to Timothy, and he tells Timothy, you're a young man. Don't let those who are older than you look down upon you. And he calls Timothy an elder in the church. So what he's saying is, the wisdom that comes with age, that's what you need to carry if you're going to have the title of elder. 
overseer, or maybe you've heard it as bishop, if that's it. It means you have oversight over the local church that you're uh, an elder, an overseer, pastor of. And then shepherd, which is where we get the word pastor. That's what's correlated there. It's funny. Uh, Do you know the one that's least used in the New Testament? Pastor. The other two, elder and overseer, are used more. Um, But we have tend to gravitate towards the word pastor. It's fine as long as we understand they're all three interchangeable, and those are kind of the roles of what a pastor is supposed to do at a church. And so Peter tells these elders, right? He's writing to these churches that are scattered around. They're going to get this letter, they're going to read the letter, and then they're going to get to the end of it, and they're going to go, and he says, I exhort you, I appeal to you. And it's interesting how Peter appeals. He's an apostle. He, and he has a lot of experiences with Jesus Christ. Everybody's going to agree that Peter was probably not, he was never designated like, you're the head apostle. Jesus never says, you're number one, Peter. But what we see is no apostle in the New Testament speaks to Jesus more than Peter does. Everything that Jesus takes an apostle with, Peter is one of the three that goes with him. He was the the elder, the leader of the church of Jerusalem after Jesus ascended. He was clearly an important, important figure. And he could have said, don't you know who I am? Listen to me by my authority. But what Peter does instead is he says, listen, I appeal to you elders as a fellow elder. He says, listen to me, pastors, as a pastor. I get the struggles. I know what you're going through. I know what your people are asking. I have people that I'm shepherding the same way too, so listen to me. He doesn't go to his apostolic authority. He goes to his shared experience as a pastor. And he says, not only that, that he's witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Now, there's debate here on what exactly Peter is saying. It could be two things, right? He could be saying that he was an eyewitness to Jesus' sufferings, which is true. Or he could be he is a witness, as in someone who proclaims the sufferings of Jesus Christ, which is also true. So for Peter, it's probably both. Right, if you remember the story of Peter, you remember him in the upper room at the Last Supper. Right, We just took the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper, which becomes the first Lord's Supper. Peter, in the upper room, Jesus says, I'm going to go, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, you're, I'm not going to let you go die. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And for a guy like Peter, those are fighting words. And so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John after the Lord's Supper. He puts them in a garden, and Jesus says, pray. And then he goes, a stone's throw away, and Jesus begins praying. And he prays intense because he knows what's coming. And Peter, James, and John sleep. They get a little catnap, which it's easy for us to be like, why are you sleeping? But it was the middle of the night. Three times Jesus wakes them up, and on the third time Jesus says, get up. Here comes the one who's going to betray me. We see Judas come, and he kisses Jesus on the cheek. And what does Peter do? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. All of a sudden, he has a sword. Of all the disciples, Peter should have been checked for a sword. And Peter isn't Zorro. He doesn't have that pinpoint accuracy where he can write letters with his sword. He just starts flailing this thing. There's, there's no way Peter was aiming for a guard's ear. He was aiming for the guard's head. He just missed. He really should come to our men's fellowship tonight where we're going to practice shooting and getting our aim down. It would have helped him tremendously. 
He cuts the guard's ears off. And Jesus says, stop. This isn't how the kingdom of God is going to come. This isn't how we're going to do it. And this story fascinates me because Jesus picks the guard's ear up, puts it on him, and heals him. What does the guard do? He has to keep arresting Jesus. But he's like, my ear is, I mean, it's just such a weird and a fun story. And so Peter follows behind them, probably at a good distance. Jesus is under arrest, and, and Peter's not able to help, and he won't help. So uh, if they turn on Peter, Jesus is going to be there to help put somebody's ear on and bail Peter out of trouble. And it's something that must have shook Peter. Because for the rest of the night, while, Peter is, uh, while Jesus is undergoing all these illegal trials, you know what we don't see Peter doing? Sleeping. He couldn't stay awake when he was supposed to pray, but now that the action's ramped up, he doesn't sleep. He's warming himself by a fire, and three times Peter denies that he knows who Jesus is. And one time he denies knowing Jesus to a little girl, which means he wasn't intimidated by the physicalness of the other person. Right after the third time in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is denied, but when Peter denies Jesus, this is what the text says in Luke 22, uh, verses 60 through 62. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And so he went outside and he wept bitterly. So, so the rooster crows. Peter, all of a sudden, it like triggers his mind. He's like, Jesus said I would deny him three times. He looks, and Jesus just so happens to be being moved from one room to the other, and they make eye contact, and it shatters Peter. Breaks him. He leaves, and he weeps bitterly. He absolutely was a witness to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Peter appeals to these, these elders. He says, I appeal to you uh, as, as a fellow elder, as a witness to the sufferings of Jesus Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory that is about to be revealed. There's another story in the Gospels that involves Peter where Jesus reveals his glory to Peter in a way that's, that's different, right? Peter, James, and John are the three apostles that kind of go with Jesus to these really important events. Uh, Andrew maybe was there. He kind of gets not mentioned, but he's the fourth one in that inner circle of apostles. So it's Peter, the sons of thunder. And we see in Luke chapter 9, verses uh, 29 through 36, I'm going to read it all, that that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain and listen to what happens. About eight days after this conversation, he, that's Jesus, took Peter, John, and James, and they went up to a mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And they appeared in glory, and they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And Peter and those who were with him were in a deep sleep. Seems to be a theme with these three. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. And the two men were departing from him. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, It's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. 
And while he was saying this, a cloud appeared and he overshadowed them and they became afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. And after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent. And at that time, they told no one what they had seen. There's so much about the transfiguration that makes me laugh. One, Peter has got to learn to not talk in situations like this. But he sees a glimpse of the glorified Christ. He sees Jesus talking to two of the great Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah. Moses, the one who went on Mount Sinai into the cloud, gets the law and comes down and his face is glowing. Moses, that Moses he sees Jesus talking to. And he sees Jesus talking to Elijah, the great prophet, who stands on Mount Carmel alone and argues with all of these prophets of Baal and ends up winning the battle because his God is greater than their false God. This Elijah who can outrun a chariot. This Elijah who hides in a cave for a while and hears God in the still, small voice, the Elijah who never dies. Elijah, Enoch, two guys in the Bible who never die. When Elijah gets to the end of his life, he goes out into a field, a chariot comes down, Elijah says, peace out, hops in, and he flies on off. There's never a death there with Elijah. That's the Elijah that Peter sees talking to Jesus. And Peter, (laughs) I relate to Peter so much. Not only does he speak when he should be quiet, he says the absolutely wrong thing. It's good for us to be here, Lord. We fit into your company. Elijah, Moses, Peter, James, and John. We'll make three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elisha. That God doesn't just smite Peter right there. Moses and Elijah are servants of God. Jesus is God. And so we see this cloud that comes over them. You don't see Elijah and Moses anymore. You hear God's voice saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And who's left standing? Jesus. And it shakes Peter so much that he doesn't talk. So he's telling these people, a fellow elder. I've witnessed the sufferings of Christ. I share, I guess one who's going to share in the glory of God. That's God revealing his glory to Peter. When there's clouds, that's glory in the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, you can see the idea of glory being played out in these, this fog, this cloud that comes over them. And so he's saying... Like, listen to what I'm about to tell you, pastors. It's important. And so what does Peter say? Shepherd God's flock among you. Shepherd means to feed or to tend or to care for. Luke in Acts 20, 28 says this, Be on guard for yourselves for the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. We hear this and we hear the word Peter of all people saying shepherd and it should make our minds think Peter's thinking of another event that happened in his life. 
after he denies Jesus, after he runs away, after he's crying, after Jesus has been dead for three days in the tomb, we look up and what do we see Peter doing? Fishing. He went back to what he was doing before Jesus called him. Who's he with? His brother Andrew, James, and John. And so they're, they're fishing uh, out on the Sea of Galilee, and they're not good at fishing. That's one of my favorite little hidden details of the Bible, is Peter is a professional fisherman, and we never see him catch a fish. They fished all night. They haven't caught a thing. They're coming into shore, and they hear somebody from the shore say, cast the net on the other side. This is the second time that Jesus has told Peter to do this. When Peter was initially called as an apostle, the same story is happening. Him and Andrew are on their boat. James and John are on their boat. They're fishing. They don't catch anything that night. Jesus says, cast your nets on the other side. They cast your nets on the other side. They catch so many fish, they have to call James and John's boat over. And Peter falls down on his boat and says, Lord, you have to get away from me because I am a sinful man. And this time, they cast the net on the other side. They pull the net up. They catch this large amount of fish. And then John goes, it's Jesus who's talking to us. And Peter looks up and he sees Jesus. And I just love Peter because re- he reminds me of he, he puts on his coat and then he jumps in the water to swim to Jesus. And when he gets there, he sees that Jesus has a fire going. He has some fish on the fire. And so Jesus looks at Peter and he's like, it's a potluck. You have to go get some fish and bring it over here. So Peter goes back. Remember, he left everybody else in the boat to tend to the net, to get the boat docked, to do all of those things. So he goes, he gets some fish, he brings it to Jesus, and they say this in John 21, starting in verse 15. And when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he had asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Jesus said, truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk around wherever you wanted. But when you grow older, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you want to go. And he said this to indicate what kind of death Peter would glorify. And after saying these things, he told him, follow me. How many times does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him? How many times did Peter fall asleep in the garden? Three. How many times does the rooster crow? Three. This is Jesus saying, it's okay. I forgive you. Here's what you have to do. Feed my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. Was Jesus into stock shows and he had all these lambs laying around that he needed Peter to take care of? No. He was talking about the believers. He was talking about Christians. So when fellow elder Peter, writing to these churches, who's witnessed the sufferings of Jesus Christ, who's been a partaker of the glory that's about to come, looks at these churches, writing this letter to these pastors, and he says, shepherd my sheep, this is the story that should come to our minds. 
Or afterwards, Jesus says, follow me. Because to shepherd means you tend to the sheep. You take care of your sheep. So this includes feeding them. This includes shearing them. This includes watching them. This includes when they're wounded that you tend to the wound. This includes making sure that the youngest sheep get the milk so that they can grow up into the older sheep and eat the solid food that they need to eat. This means carrying the wounded so that they don't get left behind. This means understanding who is your sheep and who isn't your sheep. This means understanding that wolves will come in sheep's clothing and that sometimes you have to build pens to keep wolves out and other times you have to shoot wolves that have bound up into the pen. This is incredibly hard. Especially nowadays, there's this new thing called the internet. Have you heard of it? Al Gore invented it. That joke, ah, man. It killed at the men's conference this weekend, I can tell you that. It's hard to keep wolves from coming in because you can Google anything and find anything. And whatever article, whatever post comes up first typically isn't the most biblically orthodox one. And so pastoring is not an easy profession. Uh, It's absolutely a calling. And there's lots of things that make it difficult. There's lots of parts of shepherding that make it hard. I think the hardest part of shepherding, the hardest part of pastoring, is sometimes the sheep bite back. I don't take this lightly. I don't take my role as a pastor lightly. I don't want to come off the way that I do, and I hope it doesn't come off that way. But I also understand that I am merely a human and that I am merely an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. And here in our church, I shepherd alone. Our deacons are great, but they're not shepherds. They're deacons. They're different ordained positions. So there's things that we do here. There's things that we put up. There's parameters that we keep to shepherd the sheep among us that I know some don't like and that I know can be very frustrating. But there's dangers abound and there's dangers that lurk. I think pastoring is difficult and one of the hardest parts of pastoring is you can be a pastor in title but not a pastor in practice because pastoring comes with trust. And so you can hire somebody. But if you don't trust them, they're not ever really your pastor. It's my commitment with you is is like, we're here for the long haul. And that I'm going to lean into the chief shepherd Jesus as much as I can. I understand that trust is earned, that it's not given, that it's easily lost, and that it's hard to gain. And so my commitment has always been to be as honest and as kind as I can be, which means I'm not going to lie if you ask me a question. It means that our Sunday morning gatherings right now is the most important time for us as a body of believers. It's here that we take the Lord's Supper. It's intentional that we only take it here. We don't do it on Wednesdays. It's here where we're most fully gathered together as a body of believers, where you can look across the pews and you can see a multitude of generational people that are here with different backgrounds and different uh, experiences and even slightly different beliefs on various third-tier things. 
It's here that the word is preached, book by book, verse by verse. And this has a cumulative impact on you and on me. You may not notice it. You may not be able to remember one sermon that I've ever preached. But over the course of time, as your heart is exposed to the word of God over and over and over and over again, it's like a wave that crashes on the shore. And slowly but surely, it begins shaping you to be more and more like Jesus. The goal here is not, we're not, listen, I'm not very entertaining. I have a couple jokes. Half of them are terrible. The goal here is not to coddle you. The goal here is not to please the highest donor of the church. The goal is to be faithful to the chief shepherd. And so this means sometimes the word of God convicts, and this means sometimes the word of God encourages, but always the point at the church is to glory in the good news of Jesus Christ to make much of the gospel. And I think the hardest thing for me is I know I'm not going to do this perfectly. And I can't. I'm going to sin. And I have to remind myself that when I sin, I fall, I lean into the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't be your Savior. Jesus is the Savior. And so if we come here and make much about Ben, like go somewhere else, please. Because the Bible tells us that those who teach, that those who preach, there's going to be a stricter judgment, that you're going to be held accountable for what you taught and what you preached. And so that's why there's times I'm very strict and very hard on things is because I know in the end when I stand before Jesus, I'm more like I want to be glory. I want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's a heavy burden, but it's one that I bear with joy. I absolutely love it. Did you catch what Peter says? He doesn't say, shepherd all of the Christians everywhere. He says, shepherd the flock among you. There are sheep, and there are sheep beyond the walls of our church, amen? There's a few at the church of God, not many. I'm just kidding. Peter says that your calling, your responsibility isn't to them as a pastor. That your calling, your responsibility is to your sheep. Can I tell you one of the biggest weights that I feel as, as the pastor of this particular church? If I look at our membership role, do you know how many members that we have that biblically I am responsible and a pastor for? 350. Of that 350, slightly under 200, like slightly under 300, just a touch under 300, have never walked in the doors in the four and a half years I've been here. I don't know how I can be a faithful under shepherd to them if they can't. They won't even come. And I'm not saying anything negative. They may go to a different church. They may be somewhere else. But if we're going to be a biblical church, if we're going to understand what it means to be a member and to not be a member, at least we need to know who is a member and who isn't. So the most loving thing that we can do with those brothers and sisters is to chase them down. And if they're belonging to a different herd, pray with them and lovingly say, go be an active member in that church. And if not, encourage them to come back into the fold with us. If they don't have a different shepherd, if they have no desire to come back to the church, am I really their pastor? 
No. The Bible tells us Jesus talking about his sheep, they hear his voice and they know his name. We know this to be true with sheep. That shepherds tend for them, that they cared for them. If you won't come and be tended, if you won't come and be cared for, if you won't plug in and be involved and help us with the ministry, are you a member of the church? No. And brothers and sisters, you cannot be the church on your own. We absolutely should be the church, right? That's what we're saying. This is a building that we gather in. It's not like it's the church's building, and this is the church's ministry, and you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ are the church together. We're not the church individually. We can't be. It means a gathering of brothers and sisters of Christ. We're, we're the church together. You can't do this on your own. That's why Jesus tells the parable of you have the 99 sheep, but there's the one that's lost, and so he goes and catches the lost, and what does he do? He doesn't camp out with the one sheep that lost and stay there. He brings the sheep back into the fold. We do it together. So if they're not covenanting with us, if they're not going to keep the covenant with us, the most loving thing that we can do for them, the most caring thing that we can do for them is not let them feel like they're still members of the church, but lovingly and graciously say, we want you to be members. We want you to be involved with us. We want you to plug in. We want you to grow with us. But you're not. It also means that our goal is to reach lost people not people from other churches who are disgruntled. That's what wolves do. We're not in a contest with other churches, right? Do you understand? We're, we're, we don't fight other churches, right? It's not, it's not Ben versus Rocky or Ben versus Susan. I think I'm more intimidated to Susan than Rocky, but I don't know. Our common enemy is who we face. Paul tells us in Ephesians that our enemy is threefold. It's Satan, it's the world, and it's our very own flesh. It's sin and it's death. That's the enemy. We're not in competition with other churches. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's plenty of lost people around us that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who we're going after. That's who the Lord has led us to be as a gospel-centered church. The other thing we need to see here before we move on is shepherd. The word shepherd is the imperative verb here. So everything else that comes after shepherd that Peter's about to say is how we shepherd as pastors, how our church is supposed to see these things. So shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Overseeing, another word for what it means to be a pastor, an overseer, or a bishop. It means exercising oversight, watching over, not out of compulsion. This means like grudgingly. I don't really want to do it, but I guess I'll do it. Nobody else is going to step up and do it. If I don't do it, then it's not going to get done. If we keep going, not, not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Pastoring is not a 9 to 5 job. If you have a pastor who won't answer your calls after 5 p.m., you probably need a new one. We would laugh in youth ministry. Nobody has a crisis at 4 p.m. on a Thursday. It's 2 a.m. on a Saturday night. Here's what I love. There's nobody forcing me to do this. 
I, I love being a pastor. I love the ministry that the Lord has. I was at a conference with a bunch of other pastors, and I've heard other pastors, and I hear pastors call me all the time, and they're just disgruntled, and they absolutely can't stand their churches. And so they leave. They're at a new church for a year or two, and then they get disgruntled. They get unhappy. They leave that church. There's a common denominator with them, but they don't want to listen to me. Being a pastor, being a shepherd, means you have to be able to shepherd the flock willingly. It can't be, oh, I guess I'll go do that. There's a lot of people who want to be pastors because you get to stand up on a stage and people have to look at you. And if you can stand up on the stage, if you can tell a few jokes, if you can have a few anecdotes, if you can sprinkle in Bible verses to make it sound biblical, then a lot of people will like you. And I know people that that's the goal, is to give people what they want. And for them, it's a drag every single Sunday because what they do is they like to have a distance between their sheep. They don't want to be with them. Can we just say, be weary of pastors who get rich in the pulpit. They're more dangerous than politicians who get rich in the the offices that they hold. It doesn't mean you shouldn't pay a pastor. 1 Timothy 5.17 says this, The elders who are good leaders are worthy are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. But it also doesn't mean you have to pay a pastor either. Those who are in ministry for fame and for fortune, those who are in ministry to climb the ladder, their motivation is always to get a bigger church, to get a bigger platform, and to get a bigger paycheck. That cannot be our motivation here. Our motivation must be faithfulness to God. Verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Maybe your translation says domineering. And entrusted to you means in charge of, or your, your heritage in one translation, or, or a lot of church, assigned to your care. This is where it's going to get hard, and I'm going to look down because these verses are kind of hard. There is such thing as pastoral authority, and just like all authority, it has been far too abused, but that doesn't mean we can just throw it out. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account so that they can do this with joy and not grief for what would be, uh, that would be unprofitable for you. A few verses down, what we'll get to at the end of the sermon, Peter says this, In the same way you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. There is such thing as pastoral authority. It's meant to be used for the gospel and for the good of the local church. And this looks different in different uh, churches. It doesn't mean domineering. It doesn't mean pressing your thumb down on those that the Lord has given to you on your sheep. It doesn't mean walking all over everybody else to build your platform or to build your ministry. This comes back to trust. You can be a pastor in title, but not a pastor in practice. It takes time to develop that. And especially nowadays when the tenures of pastor are shorter and shorter and shorter, trust is harder and harder and harder to earn. 
there's been an invention that's been detrimental to the church, to the local church, uh, and it's not the internet. It's the vehicle, the car. As soon as the car came around, what ended up happening is you used to have to stick it out. You have to have to stay in the church to figure it out and to structure it out. And then as soon as you got a car, what happened was, well, if you don't like that church, you can just drive to the next one. We're in Scurry County. Throw a rock and you'll skip on the roofs of three or four churches before it hits the ground. And the Bible's very clear. Pastors should not be domineering towards their flock. It should never be like, I'm the pastor. Do you know who I am? I'm a man of God. How dare you take that to me or do something like that? Peter's using the example of a shepherd. How many sheep are going to like a shepherd if the shepherd is just continually beating them and beating them and beating them with a rod? pastors who scream there's pastors who will yell that's not what the bible's calling us to do brothers and sisters what the bible's saying is that we're in this together that we're a body of believers that we're one flock in god christ is the ultimate shepherd and he is appointed to his churches under shepherds to lead and to grow us in him i know pastors that won't serve it breaks my heart Look, the Lord has, pastors live in a fishbowl. It's a reality of life. And it's cool. I go to the basketball game and nobody goes, there's Ben, what does he do for a living? They go, there's that really good looking pastor at Ira Baptist Church. I promise it's not hardest on me. It's much harder for my wife and it's much harder for my kids. But the reality is, as much as being a pastor is my calling, it's a calling on Morgan's life to be a pastor's wife. It's a calling on my kid's life to be pastor's kids, to be PKs. And PKs come with a reputation, don't they? Again, my commitment is to be faithful. I'm not going to be fake. I want it to where you look in my house, you see who we are. I'm the same person here that I'm the same person in my house. If you call me at 2 in the morning, I'll answer. I will probably be grumpy, but I'll answer. I'm not perfect, but I'm who you have. (laughs) And brothers and sisters, you're not perfect, but you're who I have. We're in this together. And so Peter says in verse 4, When the chief shepherd appears, you, talking about these elders, will receive the unfading crown of glory. This isn't the king's crown. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, is he's talking about the races, right? You're going to receive the crown. You're going to receive the medal. Like when, you, when I was in school, we, had, we called it the peewee track meet. Uh, it's where all the kindergartners up all the way to fifth graders would go out to the track. I think it's just a day after test where teachers were like, we need to go outside and we need to throw dodgeballs at the children, uh, which is ultimately what it became. We'd do the peewee track meet. We had different classes. We, like, we were three times the size of virus, so we had three kindergarten classes and three first grade classes, three, so on. And each of the classes would compete, and you had teachers who got into it. Miss Ewing, I'll never forget. I, I still don't know math because we were practicing hula hoops. Every kid who competed in the peewee track meet, which was mandatory, received what was called the Panther Ribbon. It was our... I'm a millennial, so it was just us. We were all winners. It was great. 
Peter's talking about something kind of like the panther ribbon, except not really. He's saying if you're a faithful pastor, if you're not domineering, if you're shepherding your flock, if you're going through all the hardships, all the highs and lows. I don't want to make pat like I I love pastoring because I get to see people at their worst go to their best all the time. I get to walk with people as they're dealing with life situations. I get to comfort people at a funeral, and I get to pray with people and rejoice when their children are born. I get to see people get baptized. I get to do all sorts of things that absolutely lights me on fire. It's not this horrible, terrible thing, but there are a lot of hardships with it. It's, it's just not, there's never an end to it. I don't, a vacation's not really a vacation. We've come back from vacations because things happen with the sheep, and you have to be with your people that you love, and that's what I love about it. And what Jesus is, what Peter is saying to these people is that there is this crown, there is this panther ribbon. There's this crown that you will wear. And it's unfading. It's in the glory of heaven. So here's what I'll do. I'll show mine off to you. I'll let you look at it. You can be an envious and then we'll throw it down in front of Jesus and we'll worship. Verse 5 says this. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That phrase, be subject, is translated as submit in other passages. And we've seen Peter say this phrase several times in the book of First Peter. He says, submit to every human authority. And we talked about how that means you use your freedom for the glory of God. He said, wives, you submit to your husbands. This means you use your spouse for the glory of God. If you're married to an unbeliever, you submit to them in such a way that they might see your life. They may see you act. They're going to see you in the fishbowl of life, and they might repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Slaves, submit to your masters is what Peter says. We took that to understand you use your freedoms. You use your career for the glory of God. And now Peter is saying, submit to the elders. You who are younger... That's what he says. Does this mean we have to reach a certain age before we have to submit to our pastors? And if so, what is that age? We can take a vote. It'll be just a couple years younger than you, right? That's not what Peter's saying. What he's saying is uh, you submit to your elders. You, You trust your elders to take care of you in these situations. He also says elders plural, and we need to talk about this. In the early church, most of the churches would have what's called a plurality of elders and not just one pastor. You see it throughout the New Testament. And so together, those men would shepherd the churches. Titus says this in Titus 1.5, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and is to direct you to appoint elders in every town. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I hope that as our church continues discipling one another over and over again, that the Lord might be calling some of you to be pastors, that some of you men would have that calling on your life. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Every sin that you and I commit, do you know what it boils down to? pride. I want it my way, not God's way, so I lie. I want it my way, not God's way, so I steal. I want it my way, not God's way, so I covet. I want it my way, not God's way, so I do whatever it is. It's this pride that we have that wells up within us. Brothers and sisters, grace does not come to the prideful. It comes to those who know that we need grace. It comes to the humble, those of us who know that our lives are not together. Those of us who need help, that's who grace comes to. 
It's not about being tough. It's about understanding who we are and the role that God has placed us in. The proud don't get saved because they don't think they need the gospel. The proud don't share the gospel. Only the humble do. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, this is a, a weird passage, not just like a good application point to this. He's talking to pastors. But what we can see and what we can say is if you're an unbeliever here, you should get saved. You should repent from your sins. You should turn to Jesus Christ for grace and for salvation and that he will save you from those things and then that you should commit and you should join a local church. You should be disciples who make disciples. It's one thing to be a disciple, but to fulfill the biblical mandate, you must pass that down, pass that along. Be a disciple maker. Find places to serve. Ask questions of the text. Read the... Listen, if you can't figure out what I'm doing, which just the next passage of Scripture is what I'm going to preach, read it this week. See what the Lord brings to you when we come together. Ask questions of the text. Pray before you come. If you have an issue, come and talk to me about it. Take the membership class. We're going to do a membership class here pretty soon. And maybe you've been a member for a while, but you want to figure out what we're talking and what we're teaching about there. Go to the membership class. You don't have to be a brand new member to go to it. It's a great class to go to just to learn what we believe, why we believe, who we are, what to expect, what you can expect from the church. Look at the covenant. Read the covenant this week. Recommit yourself to keeping that covenant and finding practical ways to live it out with one another. Look at the church's purpose. We exist to glorify God. Easter's coming very quickly. Pray that God would find, like, bring someone to your mind, bring someone to your heart, put somebody in your way that you can invite to church, that you can share to come, to be a part of what's going on. Let's be a flock together faithful in the Lord as best we can, apologizing when we sin, laughing about it in a few years when it's not so sensitive. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you that we do get to gather together, that we get to be a flock, that we can be with one another, that we can have brothers and sisters in Christ who are saved just like we are. God, I'm grateful that we can take the Lord's Supper and we can be reminded, God, that you saved us from our sin. We can't save ourselves, God, so you came and you saved us. That you bore the wrath, God, not just some distant wrath, some cold wrath. You bore the wrath that was deserved for us. You give to us your righteousness, God, the righteousness that you earned, that you deserved, that we did nothing to deserve. God, you loved us before we were lovable. Help us, Father, to grow in your gospel and to grow in your grace. Thank you for Jesus, for the finished work of the cross. God, I thank you for this church. That you've given us one another to help us grow in you. Help us to grow in you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Daryl and Tina will lead us.